Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, October the 13th. Unlucky for some, but not for me, because I'm with my old friend, Peter Slen, who uh, is the executive producer at C-SPAN. Peter and I have been meeting every Friday afternoon for the last few weeks, talking about the series he's running on uh, C-SPAN, 10 books that shaped America. We began uh, this series with a conversation about Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Then we talked about the Federalist Papers. Last week, we talked about... Uh, the book, uh, History of the Expedition under the Commander of Captains Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark's narrative or diary of their discovery or colonization of America. And today we're moving on to a book that everybody knows and a figure that everybody knows, one of the most famous Americans in history, Frederick Douglass, former slave writer, wrote three books. And we're focusing today or C-SPAN focused today in terms of the 10 books that shaped America with his 1845 uh, autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. Um, I'm guessing, Peter, that this one wasn't very controversial. I can't imagine anyone argued against putting the Douglass book in, in one of the 10 books that shaped America. In the choosing of it, no. We've done uh, Frederick Douglass several times on C-SPAN, but for this series, this was a this was an easy one. Absolutely. The importance of this book can't be overstated. Coming out in 1845, former slave, actually writing a book, actually learning to read and write, and writing a book that is beautifully written and graphic. And it shocked a lot of people, especially in the North, because in the South, it was legally available, but as our guest Edna Green Medford told us, if you had a copy in the South, you didn't advertise it. Yeah, well, surprise, surprise. Um, so uh, I'm getting the sense from you that there may be a little bit, bit of controversy about whether to use this one, the, the 45 biography, autobiography, or the 50, uh, 1855 one, My Bondage and My Freedom, or his final autobiography, the Life and Times of Frederick Douglass that came out in 1881. Did you debate that or was it pretty clear that you needed to focus on this first one, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass? That was not a topic that was brought up. Remember, we take this, our books from the list created by the Library of Congress, oh, a partner in this. And it, the 1845 narrative was the book that was on the Library of Congress's list. Did you talk about either of the other two books or you just focused on the 85 book? We focused on 1845. We certainly mentioned the other two, but the focus was on 1845. Uh, it seems to me, um, Peter, that this is the most quintessentially American of all American books in the sense, as you suggest, it was someone who taught themselves to uh, read and write, who didn't have any natural advantages and yet came through. It's the, the most American of American stories and books, isn't it? Uh. It is a strong American story. He was taught to read, actually, Andrew, by a Mrs. Old, A-U-L-D, in Baltimore, and a white woman. 
He was enslaved by her family. And as a young boy, he was seeing the the white son of the olds being taught to read and write. And he asked if he could as well. And she said yes. And she taught him. When Mr. Old found out that this was happening, there was a bit of an explosion. And Mrs. Old stopped the lessons at that point. But Frederick Douglass picked it up. And as he's quoted as saying, um, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose at whatever cost or trouble to learn how to read. He did see it. He was able to equate reading with a ticket to freedom. So Peter C-SPAN does a very good job remaining above the fray. That's why we all love it. It's about as objective as you can get, even if the notion of objectivity is perhaps a little problematic. But it's hard to think or read about uh, Douglas or read his work without a sense of outrage, isn't it? I that came through absolutely, and that is certainly. I mean, that's almost a given. Um, we all recognize what this country was like. Much of this country was like in 1845, and as we continue our journey, um, we all recognize that absolutely. And what about for you personally, as an American? Well, of course. Is it a sense of I mean, shame it, or outrage or just complete oh, sort of mystery that that a country that announced itself on the world stage as democratic and, yeah, and yeah. dedicated to freedom would be founded on such a profound injustice? Yeah, and that only um, white male landowning People were the voters and the deciders. Um, yeah, we all recognize what we were and what we are striving to become. Absolutely. Tell me about this man, Douglas. Uh, remarkable character, remarkably, um, remarkably physically impressive, mentally impressive. What is it about him that most struck you, both in his life and his work and in, in the people you talked to for this series? You know, Andrew, you've met people in your life, and maybe you're one of them that can kind of see around corners. And this is what struck me about Douglas, is that he was born with a natural intelligence and an ability to see beyond his immediate circumstances. Um, for example, you were just showing some photos. Photography was in its infancy and during his youth. And he became one of the most photographed people in America um, during this period because he understood the power of a photograph. And he was able to pen this beautifully written narrative of his life. Uh, this was seven, eight years after he escaped from slavery, for God's sake. So this was a man who could kind of see around corners and kind of knew the next three steps that needed to be done. And he was able to, to uh, harness 
that knowledge and that intellect and take it to the north and really contribute to the abolitionist cause. We have to get. I mean, the guy went on to be a a, a newspaper publisher, right? On top of everything else. Oh yeah, and I'm sure he could have been many other things. He had that innovation, yeah. which perhaps defines most defines the uniqueness of America. I'm sure you get this question, Peter. I often do. People often say, "Well, if you could all interview anyone from history, who would you interview?" And um, it's hard sometimes to uh, to give an answer to that. But thinking out loud here, I'd love to have interviewed um, uh, Frederick Douglass. He's physically impressive. He, he he writes brilliantly. What was he like as a person? Did he have uh, a, a physical presence? Was he incredibly uh, articulate? Sometimes the strongest writers I get on my show are not very articulate, and sometimes the worst writers are remarkably articulate. What's your sense of what he was yeah. like in person? Yeah. He did very well on the lecture circuit after he got to the North and after this book was published. This book had an immediate impact. It sold 5,000 copies up in the North. He was on the lecture circuit, which was a, the, the information exchange at the time among the elite and educated, and he was selling out lectures. So he was very erudite, very well-spoken, uh, very able to connect and appeal to his audiences. And it was profitable for him. It was profitable for the abolitionist cause. And it made a difference. So he was, yeah, he was, he was an eloquent man, strikingly handsome. Um, and you can see that in all the photos, you know. Yeah, I mean, physically a remarkable Imposing man, presence. Both as an old and as, as a young man. Um, the book comes with, uh, a preface from its publisher, William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, we've done some shows on the anti-slave alliance in the North, Garrison, uh, Douglas and others. Was he writing for whites or blacks in this book or both? You know, for this first narrative, narrative, this is his first autobiography, the narrative. And that's a great question. And I wish I had asked our guest, Edna Green Medford, that um, he was writing for himself. This was his story. This was the purest story that he could write. It was his first hand experience. And he was writing for himself. And that's why it was effective. You know, and you've you've met the authors who that first book is just terrific and it comes from the heart it comes from experience and then okay now i better i want to run for president i want to do something so i'm gonna you know be very vanilla in my language and this was not vanilla in fact this was rather graphic in some of his descriptions of what happened in his life and the beating of his aunt. Yeah, you, and, you put one of the, the fight uh, with. I want to get into the book uh, in the second half of the show, but one quote you had on the screen in the show, I've often, this is from uh, Douglas's autobiography, I've often been awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of a, an own aunt of mine whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip upon her naked back till she was literally, I mean, it's, yeah. He was able to, yeah. and he was able to calmly put this into language. Not, I mean, obviously he was outraged, but put it down, 
testimony to history, and especially today, uh, Peter, history, as history doesn't seem to have become in some ways any better than it was in the 19th century. It's most important to write these things down, to record them. We are talking with Peter Slen, my old friend. Now I can call him an old friend. He's been on the show four times already, and I hope we'll continue to do this through the whole uh, show, the 10-week series of the show. He's talking to us today. Uh, he's an executive producer at C-SPAN. He's talking to us about um, Frederick Douglass's uh, masterpiece, and I, and I use that word carefully, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglas, an American slave. Uh, you interviewed a lot of people for the show. You you mentioned uh, academics like Edna Green Medford, and you also had a Yale academic on the show, uh, John Stauffer. You also had a couple of um, younger African-American writers and teachers, uh, Ernest Krim and Bobby Harley. Douglas still seems to reach a nerve even today, Peter, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There, you know, there's 30 public schools across the country named after Frederick Douglass. He is still, I would venture, Andrew, that if I were to include, I would include him as a founding father in a sense. I agree. Sure. Sure. He came along 40 years after, you know, this came along 1845, but let's, Let's expand the version, the definition of founding father and founding parents, whatever. And I, I would include him in that group. How do you think some of the founding fathers would feel? I mean, uh, Payne wasn't a founding father, but often people think of him as a kind of pre-founding father. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, well, there's Lewis and Clark, but more uh, Jefferson, uh, Madison and, and Hamilton. Do you think they would have been comfortable having... Uh, Douglas included as a founding father. Jefferson clearly wouldn't. Isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? No, they would not have been necessarily comfortable with this. However, when you get up to Abraham Lincoln and Rutherford B. Hayes and Ulysses S. Grant, those administrations Douglas served in. So he was working for U.S. presidents. This is a man who was born on the eastern shore of Maryland as a slave. His life was laid out for him, and he ends up becoming a publisher, working for U.S. president, serving as an ambassador, newspaper publisher. And this is, this is a, by dint of his own intellect and strength and determination. So I would include him as a founding father, I think, yeah. It's interesting, later today on, on Keynote, we've got Jonathan Shapiro, who's written a book about how to become like Lincoln. Someone should write a book about how to become like Frederick Douglass. I think it's a great idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from the conversations you had and the research you did about becoming Frederick Douglass? He was so controlled. Is that one way of describing him? Disciplined. I think controlled. Yes. I mean, I'm in the same, he was, it's he was controlled. I, I think of the same really, aren't they? Going back to what I said earlier about somebody who can see around corners, he knew where he wanted to go. I don't know. He's struggling in the dark and it, you know, 
brick walls, but he knew where he wanted to go and what he wanted to accomplish. And the path wasn't always clear, but Douglas could see around this corner. And that, that's a brilliance that, that you know, 0.001% of people have. I mean, I had a former boss like that who could see around the corners, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really just kind of a neat thing. And that's that's what I think his strength was. But when we think of seeing, a, and, I, and I love this metaphor of seeing around the corner, I think I'll put it in the title of, of this conversation, Peter. When we think of seeing around the corners, we think of the today, the Jeff Bezos is and the Elon Musk's who founded Amazon or, or, um, or, or PayPal, and they see around corners for their own benefit. And they're not seeing around the corners of history. Uh, Douglas was clearly able to see around the corner of history. He understood that this institution, which seemed so central to a country could be changed, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not going to comment on on uh, uh, Bezos or or uh, Musk, but he did. He saw it. He did not see this as this is for me. He saw it. This is for my people. This is for the four million enslaved Africans in America prior to the Civil War. And this is for the good of the country. I mean, he really, it, you know, Eisenhower, I think, is a good example of that as well. Somebody who knew that there would be sacrifices during World War II and knew that he would have to sacrifice some people for the greater good. And that's the conversation. Wouldn't it be fun to sit down with Frederick Douglass and Dwight Eisenhower? Yeah, that would be, uh, you and I could interview them. Maybe we can arrange that. Yeah. Um, just, or just let them talk amongst themselves and listen in. You, you, you quoted uh, in, in, in the show the, uh, the piece about violence. Did he understand, you yeah. think, that and when he saw around the corners of history, Peter, that this wouldn't be this would have to be resolved with terrible violence or the kind of equivalence of violence that marked the institution itself. Did he ever imagine that it could be done peacefully? Oh, I think we all hope that World War II didn't need to happen, that it could have been resolved peacefully or that what's going on in the Middle East now could just, if everybody would just sit down and, and get together, it would all be resolved or Ukraine, Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think we all have that hope. And I think Frederick Douglass was a realist that he knew there wasn't going to be necessarily a compromise. We are talking with Peter Slen, the author, not the author, the executive producer of a wonderful show on C-SPAN, a must-view show, 10 books that shaped America. We're talking today about Frederick Douglass's 1845 autobiography. Going to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a, a companion volume, perhaps, to the C-SPAN series. Going to run a short ad, and then I want to come back and talk with Peter specifically about the book itself. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And we are back with Peter Slem, the executive producer at C-SPAN, has produced a wonderful series, 10 Books That Shaped America. We're talking today about the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. I hope most of our audience, especially in America, will have read the book. But tell us a little bit about the book itself, Peter. How does it read? It reads, first of all, in 1845 prose. So that takes three or four pages to get used to. Um, and you know what it's like to read an older text and, and uh, some of the sentence structure, et cetera. But he was, he was very precise in his language and very honest. It reads, I hate to say it, but it almost reads like a novel. Because Why do you hate you, to say that? Got, Isn't that a compliment? Because, because it's a true story. That's why I hate to say it reads like a novel. Um, as if truth is that boring. His life was so full and what he accomplished by the time he was 15, 20 years old was absolutely amazing. One of the things that comes out a little bit in the book is the role of his wife. Now, this is a woman who was shying away from the dinner parties or the 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 praise that frederick Douglass would receive and some of the company that he would receive she would do her so-called wifely duties for the party cook bake clean up etc but she was sending him money while he was up north she was a free woman in the baltimore area she was sending him money and she was making sure that his laundry was done and she was supporting him a hundred percent throughout this and it's sometimes we don't spend enough time looking at the support systems that people have is this a, is there a bit of thoreau's mother in this thoreau by the lake and, and the mother doing the washing uh i don't know that i can make that comparison fairly i'm just talking this just struck me the book struck me that you know mrs douglas is a story that is not known well enough and a lot of times the spouse or the supporting person is overlooked because of the the brilliance of the star yeah you use so. this word overlooked i i sensed a, a degree of irony there we did a show a couple of weeks ago with Anna Funders, written a marvelous book called Wifedom, which is a book about George Orwell, Eric Blair's wife, and how she was using your word, overlooked. Orwell ignored oh, really? her and, rec and, and failed to recognize her value and contribution in any of his work. Was there a little bit of that in Douglas? Did he acknowledge his it, wife in this autobiography? It, he did, and again, in an 1845 sort of way that, uh, yes, I sent my, you know, my laundry and the money was coming and um it wasn't i don't think he was overlooking her to to make his own star more brilliant i think it was just 
the way it was back then. And um, well, but not the way. No, George, uh, John Stuart Mill, who was writing at a similar time, wrote his autobiography, which was in many ways a, a love letter to his deceased wife. So not everyone were writing autobiographies and forgetting about the ladies, their wives or girlfriends. Yeah, or, or as Abigail Adams once told John Adams, don't forget the ladies, exactly. And, and later in the series, you're going to do a, a novel by a African-American writer, Zora Neale Hurst, and their eyes were watching God, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, Peter, I know you've got to run. A couple, couple more quick questions. Um, what about the influence of this book? Uh, we all know the divisions within the African-American community ideologically in terms of the state and the history of America, MLK versus Malcolm X, Du Bois, uh, the, the people who wanted to go back to Africa. What was the influence? Was there, if you like, an, an ideological narrative as well as the ability to see around corners? Was he suggesting in the book that uh, if if black Americans were, so to speak, emancipated, they they could live in America and that they would want to live in America? Frederick Douglass was telling his own story here. I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, that he was writing this for himself. And sure, he knew it was going to influence, it was going to have an impact. But he was writing it for himself, and that's the brilliance to me of this story. Um, he doesn't get into necessarily political divisions of that sort. Um, you asked the question earlier, was he writing it for white people? Sure. White people in America at the time could read. You got to remember, it wasn't a, a universal thing. And so, sure, he was writing it for influence, but he wrote this for himself. He was able to see around corners, as you say, but perhaps not every corner. He wrote three memoirs, 1845, the one you focus in the book, 1855 and 1881, was he able, do you think, in this book or in his other writing to see around the corner of the failure of Reconstruction? Well, again, we focused on this book, so Reconstruction was not, you know, this was 16 years before the Civil right. War even started. So we're still in the antebellum period here. And William Lloyd Garrison published it and wrote the foreword to it and a very strong foreword as well you know and we all know william lloyd garrison had very strong views when it came to abolition and uh and for many even in the north he was a radical abolitionist and today we would certainly celebrate him as a hero um but back then it was a you know he he was pushing pushing the envelope when it came to um, abolition and William Lloyd Garrison, I think, was ready to go to uh, ready to go to war over it in 1845. What about the role of God of religious faith in this narrative? Did he? Yeah, that that came up a little bit, and he does. Uh, he 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 is able to point out what he sees as hypocrisies in the Christian religion, uh, where the overseer or the, the master would be in church 
piously pray and then getting you know beating enslaving people and so he he saw hypocrisy and he he calls it out he calls it out in this book and that that was a little bit on the on the controversial side for a lot a lot of christians but what surprised you, know, you? It, was, you, it was what it was you reread some of the book or read some of the book what surprised you what did you not expect to find in this book well let's go back to the christianity thing i did not expect that um i was not prepared for that i'm not thinking about that i guess um but his take on the christian religion was very strong and that surprised me a bit again when you sit down with this book and you think to yourself that this this uh 1845 is what 28 years old when he wrote this 28 38 years old that he had just learned to read and was uneducated in the classical sense and the beauty of this book is just fantastic in terms of learning to read and writing a, a memoir though um did it read or does it read as if he was narrating it or does it read like a piece of literature no it did like i said it, it he's narrating it and one of the books we have coming up is my antonia by willa cather and i could almost say that they read similarly i mean a, a, they're totally different topics etc but they read in a similar fashion um my antonia is written in first person frederick Douglass's narrative written in first person another quote mr covey who was the overseer i guess or a slave breaker as edna green medford referred to him mr covey succeeded in breaking me i was broken in body soul and spirit my natural elasticity was crushed my intellect languished the disposition to read departed the cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died the dark night of slavery closed in upon me and behold a man transformed into a brute and he was referring to the fact that then there was a two-hour fight with mr covey and he basically uh kicked this overseer's ass i, I mean he he won the fight let, let me put it that way not much to add to that peter uh next week we move on to something completely different uh, as monty python famously said and now for something completely different the common law by oliver wendell holmes jr uh, could you get a more of a contrast we'll talk about this book next week between uh frederick douglas's uh, 1845 biography and the common law by uh by uh, oliver wendell holmes we look we've looked at the expansion of america we've looked at the foundations of america we looked at what the major issue slavery of america and now America is starting to grow up. It's starting to have a history. It's 1881, and we've had the Supreme Court for 80 plus years. So what have we developed as far as a jurisprudence system? And Oliver Wendell Holmes 
this book is still taught in law schools okay. and it was written in 1881. Don't give it so all I'm, away, Peter. We're going to be back I'm next not week going to, to talk about it. I can't wait. See you next Friday. Have a great week. Well. All right, Andrew. Take care.